it was a really it was a great conversation it was a very sort of honest and open and uh um yeah like i said inspiring conversation so was that you data someone just flushed a toilet somewhere <laughs> i was wondering <laughs> that wasn't me no that's upstairs that in my shot. house so let's go back <laughs> no that was great i love it uh, you know we're 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 limited in our uh, uh, recording studio it's a space. Pandemic. I'm in the quietest part of my house, but there's a there's a there's a pipe that always sounds like a tidal wave whenever any water <laughs> hits it. That's what happens when you get your bathroom redone, and it's all this PVC, and it's uh, whatever. Um, so anyway, look, we should we should get to the introduction. They're bored now. They're bored now. We bored them. Now, they, I'd be I'd be I'd turn it off. I would have turned it off five minutes ago. Welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at table seven. Did you like my adjectives? My my adjectives. I didn't look at. I didn't oh, look yet. No, oh, that your adjectives earlier, earlier in the day. Your adjectives earlier in the day were like you were like this is a soulful, inventive. He creator. is. He is. No, he's great. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. I told you, I have a little crush now. So, <laughs> so with that, I'm going to say hi, everybody, and welcome to cocktails at Table Seven inside New York's Joe Allen. I'm Sean Kent. Hello, I'm Dana Mirlock. And I'm that other guy. Jason! The handsome Jason Woodruff. Oh, yeah. So you're too kind. The uh, <laughs> My my webcam disagrees with you, but uh, I'm going to take your word for my it. My webcam says otherwise, friend. My oh, webcam wow. it captures you in all your glory. Um, we had a great, really interesting interview this week with somebody who, well, I mean, he's a really talented artist. He's a really gifted composer. We spoke with Tom Kitt. He, of course, uh, won a Tony and a Pulitzer Prize for Next to Normal. Not only is he a talented guy, but he's very engaged in the community. It's a takeaway. It was something that you want to hear from people in your community, how engaged they are. And passionate about giving back to the community. It's clearly a deep value of his. And something that's been ongoing in his career ever since starting out 20 years ago. And he was a, he's was he been a musical director and a ranger. And one of the things we talked about that's extremely interesting is how he's been sought after to do the orchestrations and adaptations for big rock rock stars like uh, Alanis Morissette and Green Day when they wanted to do American Idiot. and um, Jagged Little Pill. Jagged Little Pill. They came to Tom. And it's sort of a, a, another thing that he does because he has a very strong pop sensibility in addition to his you know, musical theater chops. But, but the reason we reached out to him in the first place was because of his involvement with NYC Next. What's fun is that he's a person who is of our generation who's been coming to Joe's since he was a kid with his folks. 
and it was great to hear about his how his parents informed his his life journeys and it's he's a really well-rounded you know you talk about people that are well-rounded he's a well-rounded guy i mean we talked about you'll see we talked about everything from billy joel to the yankees and all the things in between is one of the most acclaimed and prolific composers working in the American theater today. He received the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Drama as well as two Tony Awards for Best Score and Best Orchestrations for Next to Normal. He is the composer of the musicals If Then and High Fidelity. And as a music supervisor, arranger, and orchestrator, his credits include 13, SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical, Head Over Heels, Jagged Little Pill, and American Idiot. He is also an artist who is deeply committed to using his talents to advocate for those in need. We are very excited today to welcome Tom Kitt to Cocktails at Table 7. Welcome. welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, um, okay, quick question. How did an economics major at Columbia become a Pulitzer Prize winning composer of Next to Normal? Well, um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to kick it off, right? I, I, uh, I always knew I wanted to be a musician. I started studying piano from the age of four. And as I was having, a, I went through a, a classical education, uh, classical music, really, really up through and including high school and, and college. But when I was 12, 13, I discovered soul music and, and played in a band that was sort of modeled on the Blues Brothers. So I was getting to play a lot of Sam and Dave oh, nice. and Ray Charles and Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett, and, and uh, I just had this incredible education in rhythm and blues piano, that dovetailing with Billy Joel and Elton John and Paul McCartney, Stevie Wonder, it's sort of, I, I just fell in love with pop music and rock music. So I wanted to go to a, a school in, in, an, in a city, in a metropolitan area, where maybe an A&R person would come in one day to a club I'm playing in and say, we're going to sign that guy. Just like, uh, if you ever get the story about Bruce Springsteen and John Landau, his... Uh, his, his manager, his friend, his collaborator, who said, I've, I've something, maybe paraphrasing a little bit, but said, I've seen the, the future of music, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. And that's the dream we all have, that someone will come in, think that about us, and then our careers will be launched. But <laughs> yes. uh, my father, who's also, uh, his name is Howard Kitt, and he's had an interesting life baseball player, a phenom for the New York Yankees, wow. uh, who then became the head of an antitrust practice. So he said... You have music, you've been, it's been a big part of your life, but why not study something that just in case it doesn't work out, you have something to fall back on. And I was in, interested in economics and actually a musical like If Then, uh, which explores chance and choice and our, and, and how we make this, we go down this road and what it means to the roads that we didn't go down. That's really at the heart of economics. So I, I have to believe that in some ways economics was feeding my artistic impulses. Yeah. It sounds like it actually did. And uh, just out of curiosity, when did your dad play for the Yankees? So he um, he was signed right out of high school on Long Island in, uh, I would say, the early 60s. He's actually in uh, the 1961 Yankee yearbook, oh, posing wow. with Whitey oh. Ford. They're, out, they're, they're, they're looking at a baseball together in a grip. Oh, that's terrific. And my father roomed with Nall Stottlemyre. He, uh, he, he was a left-handed pitcher, could throw... Uh, I don't know how if they had the radar guns like they do now. They use it as often, but I, in the upper nineties, hundred, I could just when I had to catch with him, I could see the ball explode in a way that <laughs> you don't usually see. So he was the real deal, and uh, I think that 
it just became a, a the, the wear and tear and he was a, a new father and um so he didn't actually play in a in a game but he has this all these wonderful pictures of him in his yankee uh uniform and there was a a great moment in the uh, mid 90s i was in an acapella group at columbia which was another wonderful experience there and we started we, we kept singing together after we graduated and we were hired to perform at the new york yankees championship dinner in 1996 it was the first year that they had been back uh, Derek cheater's rookie year yeah. and one of my good friends we didn't all have cell phones at the time he asked if he could come along he brought his cell phone with him and i went up to mel stottlemyre the yankees pitching coach and said i don't know if you remember my father howard kitt and then he said yeah we roomed together, and uh, I got them on the phone. They the first time they had talked in that in, is so uh, in cool. years. Wow! Yeah, my mother and his wife got on the phone. So it was this wonderful. They were moment of there's there's Mel Salmire talking to my father. How crazy is that? It's amazing. And then the Yankees won the World Series that year. But that is obviously because of you. And then they won the World Series. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, can't help but think that. That was a good year. <laughs> so I mean, I guess that means uh, the family are Yankees fans. No, no Mets in your in your household. My father surprisingly was rooting for the Red Sox when we were growing up. So what? Oh dear. Go figure. What happened? <laughs> what? Oh. <laughs> but you know, I, what I found out is that my father just likes to be the instigator. He likes to push the buttons. He knew my my brother and I were diehard Yankee fans. That's called oppositional. <laughs> that's what that's called. I think. But my father is, I got to say, a lot of my uh, my passion for art and, and for music comes from him. He's, he's incredibly knowledgeable and has a wonderful collection. And he just appreciates artistry. So he'll talk less about his favorite team in baseball and more about the moment that Dwight Evans in right field threw out a Yankee runner at third base in, in the most beautiful poetic motion. Mm. That's something that he'll, he'll talk about much more than any loyalty to, to a team. But for me and my son, Michael, and my brother... We, uh, we, we we bleed Yankee uh, pinstripes. That's awesome. Are your parents musical at all? Um, they're musical. They're not musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I love that when they they broke out the guitar and 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 did their their folk duo in uh, <laughs> in the basement. But um, really, they're 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 so knowledgeable, and uh, they supported me from the from the very moment that I said I wanted to do this. To this day, you can see behind me there's a a whole collection of of CDs and records, a lot of which came from my father, who just said, "I think this piece of music would be interesting to you to listen to." And and so then the the, the Mendelssohn symphonies would show up, and they really did have a profound effect on my writing. And so yeah, they're, I, I would say that they're very musical, and they've they've been quite influential. That's fantastic. You also have some other uh, early influences. I think you share one with. Dave. Well, we, we, we read that you were a big fan of Billy Joel, and I happen to have grown up in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And I'm from Port Washington, so I know Oyster Bay well, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. I have to know, is there a favorite, do you have a favorite album or a favorite song or both? That's a really good question. Um, I would say in terms of albums, Songs in the Attic, which is actually a live album and not, not a live album from any concert. They, they, it's a compilation moments from his concerts. Right. And what's interesting is that it, it was recorded or those songs were recorded in 1980 when The Stranger and 52nd Street and Glass Houses were pushing him into the stratosphere. But that album is a collection of songs from some of my favorite albums like Piano Man, Turnstiles, Street Life Serenade. Cold Spring Harbor. I mean, those early albums to me, when uh, you can hear him really forming his musical voice and he's playing such beautiful, interesting, complicated piano. So, so yeah, I kind of feel like it's a tie between Piano Man and Turnstiles for me. And, and, and in terms of songs, the, the Billy Joel song that kind of 
blew everything open and, and there are a lot of them, but I always go back to Summer Island Falls mm. because there's something about the lyrical content of that song, the melodic piano part. It's I just immediately had to go and learn the piano part. And I'm lucky that I have what's called perfect pitch, which means I can hear a note in really just out of any place and tell you what it is. So I was able to just sit down and play a lot of those songs when they were in my head and I could sort of sing them out loud. Oh, wow. I'm jealous. I'm jealous of your perfect pitch. I think we're all jealous <laughs> of your perfect pitch. <laughs> it, ser- it serves you well because it means you can write anywhere at any time. And so it's, it's great for ear training. But, but because I relied so much on my ear, I was a lazy sight reader. And it's still something that I feel I could improve on. So I try to sit down and play some classical music every so often, even though I'm mostly writing these days. It sounds like a total immersion experience for you. You were you were getting all these different influences and they were coming organically. They were coming from where you were. They were coming from your parents. When did you first start to write music? I mean, what, what, when did you first start to like compose your own compositions? So my first composition was called The Fairy Boat. And I wrote it when I was eight years old. It's very Andrew Lloyd Webber influenced because I was listening to Joseph a lot. <laughs> but there was something about it that had a, a, a just a lilting emotional melody. People kept asking what that was and where's it from and what inspired it. So that was my first song. And then I wrote, when I was 11, I wrote a classical uh, sonatina or three movements. So, so it was writing sort of classical pieces. And then when I, again, when I was knocked over by singer-songwriters, I wrote my first songs when I was uh, 12, 13 years old and, and tried to write lyrics and pour my heart out. And because you, you hear it, you hear an album like Songs in the Attic and you say, I want to write songs like that. Mm-hmm. And then you just look it down and you say, I'm just basically copying Billy Joel. I have to actually find mm-hmm. my, my own voice here. <laughs> um, and, uh, the best thing for me was when I went to Columbia, I, I met my wife, Rita Piacepinto Kit, who introduced me to Brian Yorkie and suggested that Brian and I write musicals together. And I said to her, it's a lot for me to, to churn out a song. I don't know if I can write 15 in a few months. But what was great about that first varsity show experience was that I really did. I was able to write quickly and uh, in a way that felt uh, inspired. And not every song is, is going to be something you want to include in the show. It's, it's a good lesson to learn. But, but it really gave me confidence going forward that I could create and I could create under time constraints and, and mm. deadlines. And the show ended up being so just wonder, wonderful and, and, and fulfilling. And um, it made me want to write musicals and pursue that. And, and I hadn't had that dream up to that point. So it was it was Billy Joel. Then suddenly it was Richard Rodgers and Stephen Sondheim alongside that. So uh, I would say that that experience writing the varsity show with Brian, that was where I felt like I, I, I truly discovered was beginning to discover songwriting. Well, it, it sounds like the people who influence you, they're singing ballads, ballads in terms of their stories, not ballads in, as in love songs. But this is just a further extension of what you already wanted to do or an awakening. Well, I, th- I think you're right. And I think I think it's always people who combination of, of, of music and lyric evoke something powerful, something that feels personal. Talking about the Long Island connection to Billy Joel, we, we, we felt like he was writing our songbook. You go into to his concert and you see people singing in the lyrics in a way that, that just feels like they own them with him. And that's why those concerts sell out every month. Oh, they're amazing. And same thing with Springsteen and same thing with uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin and you know so many people that I just, just, just revere. So that was something that I aspire to in my own cre- creation. When you're writing, do the lyrics come to you first? Does the music, I mean, I know you partner a lot, 
but how does that work for you? Like, what's your process there? Well, it depends. So if I'm writing with a lyricist, we'll delineate who goes first. And sometimes re referencing next to normal, a song like I'm Alive, which I knew was going to be a feeling and wanted to be inspired by the who and Tommy and that vibe. I said to Brian, let me go first and just create something that feels energetic and exciting. And then something like Better Than Before, which is the song in Act Two where Diana is starting to have her memory come back. Brian felt like, well, I just need to crack this in terms of the story and the scope of this. So when I get a lyric, usually it will conjure something for me. It will start to inspire some sort of meter, some sort of feel, vamp. And if I just have to sit down and, and do something um, uh, first, I will just start messing around on the piano and usually just come up with some chords, a progression, a feel. If I'm writing music and lyrics, they usually happen at the same time. I usually get a hook or, and it could be a dummy hook that leads into something else. If, if it feels like it's right, they'll happen together and then I'll just decide which I want to pursue first or I want to flesh out the rest of the music or the lyric. Cool. I love Next to Normal. I mean, that is what I know you the most from and that definitely has like it feels the arrangement especially it's not a normal broadway band that is playing that you know that you have your cello and you have your violin and it, it's just the the music in that felt so different from a big broadway show that i can hear that influence well i wanted to have orchestral colors in it but be led by a rock band that could pull off the rock music in the show but be filled out in a way that because there are orchestral moments yeah there are plenty of orchestral moments in the show. And I remembered, uh, I went to the opening night of the last five years, and um, I remembered just sitting in Jason's beautiful orchestrations and not hearing that kind of sound and the way that he uses strings. And what was amazing is I, I had to go back and check that there was no drum kit because the songs groove so hard. And that's uh, my friend Randy Landau plays bass and Gary Seeger plays guitar with, with Jason. It, it was just phenomenal sonic experience. So I think that I was very influenced by Jason's work in the last five years when I looked at how strings could be a chamber sound, a string sound could be a part of Next to Normal. And then working with Michael Starobin, um, because I've learned from him, he brings an obvious expertise and brilliance that I can only hope to achieve in my, my orchestrations. And when he was filling out with Damian Bassman, the percussion book and bringing glockenspiel and vibes and, and, um, Really, it, it's 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 you have to sort of do a double take. So that's really only six musicians playing that score. He he really makes it sound much bigger. What were the challenges? Because I know that um, Next to Normal originated at second stage and it was a, a a sensation. Was there any sort of like major overhaul that had to happen in order to make it work in a you know typical Broadway house, or was it pretty much just like a smooth transition? Well, uh, if you go back and 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 look at the history of it, at second stage it was. It definitely struck a chord, but it but it wasn't necessarily a sensation. And it certainly got reviews that were kind of all over the place. There were some real positive ones. There were some negative ones. There were the middle of the road. Um, the New York Times, which is, you know, a review that everyone looks to, was, was supportive of it at second stage, but also had some strong critique. So we didn't know after second stage what the future of the show was going to be. We had hoped that it would springboard to Broadway but it wasn't ready and we knew that and and we had thought perhaps we'll just license it and see how its life what kind of life it has post second stage but then arena stage uh molly smith offered us a slot there and we had put in a change at the end of the second stage run where we changed the opening number we had a song called costco where diana has a breakdown in the in the costco store and that was one of the polarizing songs in the in the show and when we cut that and moved her episode to the opening number 
we saw this place in such a different way. And we all said, well, why didn't we do that before? And then that gave us confidence going to Arena that there were other discoveries like that. So when we went down to Arena and put in a number of changes, even though the structure, the real bones of the show were still recognizable, we changed, I think, in in significant ways, rewrote cut nine songs, added a number of things. And luckily the the, the response in, in DC was was universally positive and that gave us the, the confidence we needed to bring it back to Broadway. And if you remember, that was the spring of 2009, right after the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. There were, I think, nine shows that closed in the new, in the new year, um, one of which I was uh, the musical director, 13. Yeah. And, uh, and so Broadway was in a, in a precarious place uh, because of this financial crisis. And it was a risky time to bring Next to Normal to Broadway. And everything had to really sort of line up for the show. And thankfully it did. And some of the reviews that were mixed but positive became raves. Because sometimes people just need to, to have that feeling that they have an expectation they're going to spend money at that, at that time. And, uh, and we were able to stay afloat in previews and then the reviews came in and then the Tony Awards happened and we were able to really ride that wave and become a show that, that was able to run for a bit. So it certainly, if you, if, it seems like a charmed thing, but it was 11 years from our first songs to Broadway and the sort of roller coaster of second stage, arena, and then Broadway. Um, there was a lot of hard work, a lot of championing of that work and, and people who really put their, their faith in it and um and showed up to support it and and we're we're so grateful for everyone that did yeah i i was gonna say when i said it was a sensation the reaction that we would get at joe allen from people who had seen it around the corner they were they thought they found it to be very special because it has an intimacy to it and a power to it and it's not the kind of material that you're usually going in terms of subject matter it was funny and it had you know a lot of heart but it also is about something that's very difficult so what what drew you to what drew you to that story? I mean, in other words, what would made you want to commit the time to to flesh this out? It was actually something that Brian and I created for the BMI Musical Theater Workshop. The first year we were in the workshop, the final assignment is to write a ten minute musical, and Brian came up with the story. He had discovered statistics on shock treatment and was uh, like a lot of people who saw the show. And even like Dan, the father, says in the show, they still do that. There wasn't really a knowledge. And it felt like mental illness was all around us and something that people were struggling with, but it did not have as much of a voice in the popular culture. And, and, and it just didn't feel like it was talked about. And we, we felt like even if this is just a 10 minute musical, it's going to be interesting to tell this story. And try to tell an emotional story that maybe a lot of musicals, you haven't seen a musical um, take up uh, the subject matter. And, and certainly Brian and I have been inspired by by musicals that have, uh, as, as they say, broken the mold and brought stories to the stage that didn't seem like they were the usual stories. That's kind of, that's where you feel like the art form is, has moved forward. And that's what they were say, saying to us in BMI. They were saying, everyone should be dreaming of ways they can break the mold and, and do something that stands out, that your voice wants to rise up to meet. And this felt like if we fail, and this only is a 10 minute musical, it still will be worthwhile. We'll learn something of ourselves and of the subject matter. But in that first presentation, there were some people who said, I don't know if this should be a musical. And there were some people who said, this absolutely should be a musical. I was so moved by it. 
So we, again, didn't necessarily think it would become the musical we were working on, but we just couldn't stop writing songs for it. We we kept being inspired by, by the subject matter, by the characters, and uh, suddenly we had people who wanted to be a part of it. And that really means everything, because it's certainly, it's a writing team, but once you get producers, you get people across the theater world who offer you resources and support, um, Village Theater, the Jonathan Larson Foundation, Chickaboom, uh, which is now Ghostlight, and and on and on. And then to, of course, David Stone and Second Stage, we needed that people to believe in it the way that we did. In my in my mind, I just never thought I would see those characters on the Broadway stage. And when they did, it brought tears to my eyes to, to, to see this, all the places, all the little rooms that you've been writing this musical in, and suddenly you're sitting in a Broadway house sharing it. It's quite overwhelming. Sounds like a, a really re- rewarding journey. Yeah. And my first musical on Broadway, High Fidelity, is on the wall at Joe Allen. Ah, yes. Well, you know, we, we're, we were going to, we could talk about that later. Um, <laughs> we, just in this, or we could talk about it now, just in this sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, the only reason I, I bring it up is to say in another musical that I adore and we just celebrate. 14 years on December 6th, December 7th, 2006. But coming off of that, it was it was a very difficult experience to, to watch something that you spent years on not catch in the way that you hoped it would. And Next Normal following that up felt very risky, but also felt like I'm taking another crack at sharing who I am. And uh, and I hope people get people get it and and fall in love with it the way I do. Was that a hard thing, like a really hard thing to do? I, I assume you know I've never had something that I poured my heart into just not catch on like that. You mean high fidelity? Probably because I've never done anything quite that big. But I mean, it's just got to be. It, it, it's got to be. How do you keep yourself sane after that? And how do you pick yourself up and do it again? Well, you do it with a lot of support. Yeah. I had I had my wife and I had a newborn, well, not new, a uh, year and a half old son who I needed to be taken care of. And a lot. What was amazing was so many people in our industry called me, emailed me, said, "I believe in you. Uh, I love this piece. I'm sorry that it didn't go the way you want, but keep going. I can't wait to see what you're working on." Hal Prince has famous advice uh, that you take a meeting on your next show the morning after you open your current show. And, and he was someone who was, was instrumental to me being able to pick myself up because he, he would talk to me about West Side Story. And it's, it's just unbelievable that, that when that show opened, it was sort of a, a muted, a mixed response in some way. And he, he was talking that about, I think, I think that it might have been the Tony Awards that he was there with only one other person or two, two other people. And, um, it's like, what's that story? It's one of the most brilliant musicals of all time. And, and for him to, to offer that, support to me and advice and to say, this is just, you're, you're going to roll with a lot in this business, but you're here to have a career. And so I can't wait to see what you're working on next. It was uh, everything. And I got a lot of that from, from, from really important people. They said, go off. David Stone said, go off, think about it, feel how you need to, and then, then stop it and come back. (laughs) (laughs) But were you, you were working as a musical director throughout this whole period, right? I mean, you were doing, you had other assignments while you were composing original musicals. I did. And, uh, but, but a lot of it went away and I just focused on high fidelity. Even the, the, the jobs I was doing to support myself, playing piano bar, giving piano lessons. I thought I was going to be able to give that up and just focus on writing. And I had to go back eight or nine months later because you write a musical it's it's really it's the show running it's the show opening up income stream for you that allows you to support yourself so it was it was it was hugely difficult but things to, it took a little bit for me to come out of the funk 
and want to work again. Sure. And uh, luckily, I got a call from Dick Scanlon and Sherry Renee Scott, who needed someone to help them with a, with a musical they were working on, uh, which became Everyday Rapture. And that led me to Michael Mayer, which brought me into American Idiot. So thankfully, the, the universe kind of opened up and, and, and gave me a little bit of a crack. And I was able to follow through with that and, and really pick myself up in a, in a big way. And also Next to Normal was happening while High Fidelity was happening. So I was able to also be involved with that. So suddenly in 2010, I had Next to Normal running. I had American Idiot opening the St. James and I had Everyday Rapture opening at the, the Roundabout. So, so it's a real lesson for me in that you just don't know how things are going to go, but you just have to keep believing, you have to keep moving forward, keep challenging yourself. And to this day, I, I have things that have uh, surpassed expectations and things that, that, that have been, I wouldn't say disappointing, but maybe you had a little bit more of a, of a hope that it would, it would catch on in a bigger way. And, and that's just always going to be, I think, the, the nature of what we do. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, speaking of disappointments that when the pandemic hit, you were just about to open up at Lincoln Center. I, I assume that's going to come back just as... Well, Lincoln Center and the Public Theater, I have I have two shows that were happening at the same time. And then we're, we're slated to open a day apart in April. Oh, goodness. To answer what you said, yes, uh, Lincoln Center has moved the goalposts. But I think the last announcement was fall. And hopefully with the vaccines arriving this year, presumably, that we could we can really have some more certainty in terms of when we can reopen. So I'm hopeful that the fall will happen. There's been no public announcement yet. I know that they're committed to the show and uh, the set is in the theater we were about to go into tech. Oh, wow. And you know, I actually have it. I had a question about that with all of these shows sort of in suspended animation. I wondered, and I don't know the answer to this. You might. I assume things that are coming back are, you know, coming back and everything stays where it was. But if it's a show that's about to open and there's no sense of what the you know, length of the run is. In your case, it's just there. It's just ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally, uh, you know, you see the gears start turning and it's like a train. So yeah, I, we were we were about to do our uh, first preview for Flying Over Sunset at Lincoln Center. We were about to go into tech for The Visitor, Jagged Little Pill mm-hmm. yep. is still, uh, you know, uh, still running. So yeah, there's, uh, I'm sure it's going to be this very interesting moment when we actually press play again. And speaking of Jagged Little Pill... What was it what was it like to go from, you know, working on what you had been working on before and then go work with rock stars, go work <laughs> with Green Day, go work with Alanis? I mean, these I- iconic especially I think we're all of a, the similar generation like we grew up on on Alanis and how what, what was that experience like for you? Well, you can imagine going back to what I was saying about the singer-songwriters that yeah, Alanis is right up there. Yeah. Oh yeah, and I remember where I was, I was in college when I first saw the You Ought to Know video. And- I remember that. I was in college, too. And when it came out, it was sort of like everyone stopped and was like, come here, look at this. Yeah, you felt like the world shifted. It was a force of nature, yeah. And it was so raw, but also it was so poppy, you know, in a way. Like, it was so memorable, but it was also, You Ought to Know is like, yeah, it's it's a really powerful song. I loved seeing a, a very angry woman giving it to somebody. I mean, that was what was so shocking about it. You hadn't seen a pop star do that so much. Well, that whole album is filled yeah. with really emotional characters singing about really urgent expression and feelings. And Alanis is somebody who she's just so in touch with emotion. And anytime I have a conversation with her, I feel like I leave more enlightened and her gift of language, her uh, she's just filled with poetry and eloquence. And she's so kind and warm and collaborative. And uh, 
so yeah, in every sense, it's been the best and most beautiful experience to collaborate with her. And again, I go back to that college kid that just thought, well, that's not a universe I could ever hope to be in. And then suddenly you are. And it's the same thing with American Idiot and that album dropping and, and Green Day, who again in college, yeah. <laughs> when I was watching, mm-hmm. uh, watch it, watching them in concert and, and their videos and, and suddenly they walk in the room and they're going to know that you did this little thing to an arrangement that's part of the show that, that you're working on. And, uh, and I became great friends with them and, uh, and collaborators. They asked me to work on, on, on albums of theirs. I, I worked on Industre and I worked on, um, uh, 21st Century Breakdown. It's really the Go Go's another group that, yeah. um, I used to lay the, the lyrics out on my bed and follow Beauty and the Beat along reading, reading the, the lyrics. And suddenly you're in the room with them talking about, those memories. So, um, it never gets old. It's, 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 it's a privilege to get to, to be in the room with these artists that have really meant a great deal to forging your own path. And, um, if I can give back in any way to, to work on these shows and that they're successful and that it brings new audience, that's a, that's a wonderful gift. I feel like. Do you find it's easy, easier to, um, create something new or to adapt other people's work? Or I'm sure they're completely different things. Um, they are and they, I think they both bring a, they demand a level of creativity that is challenging and, and invigorating. But I certainly, uh, I, I get a lot of charge and excitement out of both. And, um, I can listen to Next to Normal and get goosebumps. And then I can listen to Jagged Little Pill and get goosebumps. It's, it's really just where, where do you hear yourself in that work? And, and, and what does it mean? And, and what are you noticing that theater goers and fans are getting out of it? What's there ever a sense of, Maybe I'm I'm stepping on somebody's toes when you collaborate with those people. Or? I never feel that way because it's it's really part of my part of my job is as I say the band has to be happy and the 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 album the songs they exist in this iconic state and what you're doing is saying okay we have chosen to make a musical a musical brings about it a different form and this source material is going to have to adapt along with the adaptation. So you have to be open to that, but you have to make sure that you keep the lifeblood of the material intact. People have to recognize the composition. It made sense for me in a dramatic moment in 21 Guns, I mean, in, uh, in American Idiots, to take the song 21 Guns and put the beginning in a more sparse, string-oriented world because that, that descending progression yelled Bach to me. And so... Uh, I heard the, 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 the string chamber music. One, twenty-one guns, lay down your arms, give up the fight. One, twenty-one guns, throw up your arms into the sky, you and I. But it's still 21 Guns. It's just this this treatment. And, and, and Billy Joe really loved it when I uh, referenced George Martin and all the brilliant work that he did with the Beatles. It's the Beatles songs. It's the Beatles music. But um, Eleanor Rigby, I Am the Walrus, Yesterday, uh, All You Need Is Love. The, 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 the fingerprints of George Martin are all over that. And they're so satisfying. But he's a collaborator. And it's still the Beatles. And I felt like that's kind of what I wanted to follow. And always knowing that if Alanis or the Go-Go's 
or uh, any of the artists um, who wrote songs for SpongeBob or Green Day, if they ever have a problem, they ever have a question, their word goes and we'll figure it out together. But I was never involved with those to be about me. I wanted to be about them and hopefully have a voice in how this music gets adapted for the for the stage because it's like you're not only answering to the theater fans you're answering to the the fans of the band that have a obsessive love of the source material well the album is out there so everyone's gonna know what i did (laughs) they can hear the difference right there's no hiding so if they don't like it yeah but but i got i i got into i i wanted to be an artist to take on challenges and to and and to really put myself out there in terms of what i believe and what i want to want to say as an artist and uh that seemed like it was right in that wheelhouse when we first reached out to you it came from we were interviewing jim caruso and he came from one of nyc next's oh first the sunday in the park with george sunday in the park in where the the tkts area uh in times square and i tried to go to joe allen afterwards uh, and it wasn't no, open yet. i know it's no. <laughs> a bummer uh, but but that we we you know he was so moved by that and so then we you know we were kind enough to let us use the clip and we were all we found like felt like that was such a you know heartfelt launch for the project and it feels like you give back a lot you do you have a lot of interest in giving back to the community and I know you worked with uh, the Ronald McDonald House uh, with a program called Songs in the Key of Me and Muse which is Musicians United for Social Equity and now NYC Next. And so how did you get involved with NYC Next? Uh, my my wife has a, has, has a, a close friend, uh, a colleague at Columbia, and she and her husband, basically, I, Rita, uh, my wife told me that this group was meeting. And Miriam, who, who, who uh, and, and her husband, Andy, they were having weekly Zooms. And I was growing really sad with what I was reading about New York City and 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 uh, you know there was that sort of back and forth between someone who wrote an article in the Post about New York City will never come back and then Jerry Seinfeld answered in this wonderful way and 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 I felt like NYC Next was what Jerry Seinfeld did sort of blown up into the arts Absolutely. it was people saying the city is going to come back and we have to be a part of that and we have to inspire people and show that there's life in New York and and stop the barrage of negativity and fear. And yes, it's very challenging. Obviously, New York is in a, a, a very precarious place, as are uh, cities uh, across the world, certainly in this country. But people want to live here, and 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 people need to feel that there is positive, galvanizing energy. So rather than talking to my kids and and assuring them that New York was alive and well, and that that the city was going to be was going to be back better than 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 ever, I wanted to be part of something that was actually showing that, and showing it in important ways, not just that we're going to come back, but we're going to come back as a more equitable city. We're going to come back and and, and really, as, as human beings, create a better world, a better city for all. And and the the statement of NYC Next, this, this beautiful, inclusive moment, I thought art always captures that better than anything. So to watch these brilliant artists come together in a socially distanced, safe way and sing this iconic song from Broadway and do so... In, in, in this contemporary and expressive new arrangement, I just thought it, it was saying so many important things at once. And those are the things that I really want to be a part of. I want to be, I've, I've always been someone who, who, who wants the art to speak for me. The subjects I write about, the characters, the stories I want to tell. And I feel like now in this moment, I, I, I needed to, to step up more and, and, and be a part of MIT Next and be a part of Muse 
and and make sure that I am using all that I can for for really making this world better for my kids, for everyone's kids, for our industry. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and and I want to be uh, really a, a big part of that. We learned about it because of Jim Caruso, and all three of us have been, you know, following the other things that they've been doing. Like they have the love letters to New York on their website. Yeah, which I, I contributed. I got a couple of my friends to do it, and I did one. And um, and I have to also give a, a great shout out to my friend Michael McElroy, who leads the Broadway Inspirational Voices. He's been a dear friend of mine. Michael is just uh, an inspiration in every way. There's a Broadway Inspirational uh, Voice um, concert, a holiday concert. Uh, happening and, and BIV was also what got me involved with the Ronald McDonald House because that's their program. So um, I've now written two songs, basically songs in the key of of me. Is I get matched up with a with a young child and I interview with them and then I write a song based on oh. who they are and what they love. And oh, that's fantastic! Are they posted anywhere where you can? Yeah, I think they're on the YouTube. I think they might be on the Broadway Inspirational Voices um, YouTube. Okay. Her, uh, the 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 child I I got matched up with Zoe Croy and she talked a lot about mythology so i i said you should be a goddess that was my song if there was a goddess named zoe croy what would that goddess be like and then michael of course took it and went off there with beautiful arrangement with his collaborators and It's really quite moving. So, so Michael, that the arrangement of Sunday in the Park with George that we did for NYC Next was his arrangement with James Sampleiner and Billy Porter. And um, I just, I've loved getting getting to work with Michael. Michael's also a founding member of Muse. I'm I'm in the Michael McElroy business, and I'm looking forward <laughs> to, to more collaborations that we'll be doing together. Well, when we post this, we'll have links to all of those organizations, um, just so that our listeners can can find out about them and can donate resources and can just be a part of it. And also just read the letters because they're they're kind of heartwarming. They're so wonderful. It's a beautiful program. And um, I'm really, it was one of the things too that I needed because I was stuck. I was so depressed and, and fearful and uh, it was hard to write. And when BIV contacted me and said, we have another opportunity to write for this program, I said, yes, that I'm, that I have to, I have to be doing. And that's going to unlock for me because it's just. I knew it was going to be inspiring and that and that this 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 young girl was going to um just be a, a burst of inspiring energy and she is she's she's remarkable and I'm I'm really I feel privileged that I got to write her a song. That's so cool. That's so she must be on top of the world having having someone like you write her a song. Like I hope so. I mean they're kids, so <laughs> how old is she? When she's older maybe. <laughs> she's uh nine or ten maybe. Okay. But I you know, in her in her private moments she could she could say uh it's okay. There's <laughs> songs I like better. They're, they're, they have no qualms about asking for a rewrite. I'm exactly. Sure. So I have some notes. Sure. I liked it. I have some notes. But she and her parents, who I got to meet, they're just they're just the loveliest people. And and really, I, I again, I felt I felt it was it was a great great my great fortune to get to meet them and write for them. You're you're going to be leaving us here in a few minutes to watch the NBC Broadway One Night Only. Uh, they're doing a little bit of Jagged Little Pill, I assume? Yes, we're doing two songs, and uh, they, they shot it in Times Square and uh, near the theaters. So it's um, it's going to be quite emotional, I think, to see to see all these performers back in their element celebrating Broadway and musical theater 
Um, and we're also doing a live stream concert this Sunday, Jagged Little Pill reunion concert, it's called. Um, and it's at 8 p.m. on Sunday, the 13th. And you can, I believe, buy tickets at um, Stellar, S-T-E-L-L-A-R dot com, I think. I think that's what it is. But you can always just search up the reunion concert and you'll find the link to it. But um uh, it's going to be exciting to get everyone back together in a socially distant, safe way. Yes. <laughs> I like that always gets in there. We always slide that in there. We all have to Everybody know yeah. this is what we're doing. It has to be. I wore a mask. Well, you know there are people at home who are watching. How are they doing that? Yeah. And, uh, and and really, that that was something, especially with NYC Next, that we had to we, we had to make sure that everyone knew that the artists are being taken care of. Everyone is, is being responsible and, and, and that, um, lots of full face shields in that video. I was thinking when we look back on that, it's going to be like such a moment in time is Bernadette Peters with the face mask mm-hmm. in times square singing. That was so, she was the fact that, uh, I mean, that was obviously a, a great wish that we could celebrate the original, and have her presence and and she jumped right in and she couldn't have been nicer and more collaborative to be there um there's a picture on my instagram and a number of instagrams that they um captured with uh, sort of the rows of singers there's bernadette down left and michael McElroy's arm is in the shot um with his conducting and it's this just one of the most striking images i've ever seen when so when you talked about the memory of this like that image is going to be what i think of yeah it was like the after 9-11, there was the come back to New York. Well, that's what I felt like we needed. I wanted to create that kind of energy because we can't say, like after 9-11, come to New York, buy tickets, support local businesses. We can't tell anyone to do anything. All we can say is we're here and this is a movement and we want to feel your energy as part of that. So that felt really important. And I don't know if you know, yesterday, uh, the Metropolitan Opera Chorus sang on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum uh, Christmas carols. Oh, no. And same thing, face shields and NYC Next masks and hats. And it's it's so beautiful. It's the first time they've come together and been able to sing uh, in this pandemic. So, so what NYC Next is doing, I think is quite extraordinary. And again, I feel really lucky to be a part of it. Yeah, I really wish that they could announce what they were doing, but I understand why they don't. So there's no crowd. They can't. Otherwise, it'll be flooded. Yeah, yeah. I was so nervous that we were going to be found out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, don't worry. Jim, did, yeah, he didn't tell us till afterwards. No, he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I can trust you. But at that, I think it, the, just the, also because of the times we're in, for that to appear, you know, is such a, that does something for your heart. Well, I think that we needed to, to see some kind of statement and people taking it upon themselves to, to congregate in, in whatever way that we can and sing and hear music and hear lyric. And, and, and Sunday was the was the perfect song that that that's one of my favorite songs of all time just from the moment those those arpeggios and then the chords come in and and the gorgeous lyrics and it speaks of michael McElroy. actually i think it's it's online somewhere spoke so beautifully about how that song's meaning is connected to what we were doing that day it just it really brought uh heart swells absolutely goosebumps i listened to it numerous times editing that episode and and every time uh, i i I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now. It's just <laughs> such a lush, beautiful, deep arrangement of a beautiful song. Yes, gorgeous arrangement and beautifully performed and and sung. And uh, it'll yeah, as you said, it'll be a moment to always remember. Hopefully, when we're on the other side of this, very soon. Yes, yes, yes. I hope we're further in than out. You know what I mean? Yeah, we need to start going down down the hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tired of climbing the mountain. Since this is the Joe Allen Restaurant Podcast, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you a little bit about your experience at Joe Allen. 
do you have a special memory or a, a time that you came that was after a big performance or something like that? Well, certainly after Next to Normal, when I would call on a busy night and Joe Allen knew who I was and would seat me. And that meant everything. It's to, to have some kind of recognition at a theater restaurant that you've grown up coming to with your family and suddenly you get a table and you get a table in the back. <laughs> Granted, it was right next to High Fidelity. <laughs> I got it. At that point, High Fidelity was in the back and I thought, oh, you're seating me in the High Fidelity wing. Thank you. But you know that's an honor, right? <laughs> you know it's an honor. It's a badge of honor. Oh, I do know. It's, I, I, th- that <laughs> wall is a hall of fame, that wall. It is. The writers on that wall. You feel if that's a badge of courage right there. I it's feel all like. the creme de la creme on that so wall. So I, I, I'm very proud. The first time I took my kids, the all the shows, and, and I, I was a Tony nominator and voter for three years. So there was a lot of theater and there were a lot of nights at Joe Allen talking about the show, seeing friends, going to people after shows, going, going friends after that they've seen shows I've written. So, so there are, there are a ton of Joe Allen memories, but yeah, I, I would have to say there was that little feeling of, wait, what you have a table for me? I'm calling last minute. <laughs> it's uh, it's, it's a big deal. And, and uh, I don't have that pull, kind of pull in, in a lot of places. So the fact that I had, I had a restaurant that, uh, and and uh, I've, I mean I've eaten there so many times that it's like what do I what do I get what's the new thing although they changed the menu a little bit but I miss it I can't wait to go back it's uh, it's 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 one of my favorite and most special places yeah we're 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 hanging on we're hanging on until we can keep hanging on keep hanging on I can only imagine what the I can only imagine what the jubilation level will be when we can all kind of go back to something like our lives and it's not all going to come back at one time no but it but it's going to start to you know the things are going to pop and I think it's going to feel like it's getting better yep that's what we need Sean, do you want to start out in the classy part? Yeah. Yeah. So one one thing we like to do is we like to do a little thing called last call because we're, we're nearing the end of our time with you and we've had a great time. And we do a little Proust questionnaire in the style of what they used to do on Inside the Actor's Studio. So it's just kind of like whatever comes off the cuff, whatever comes up off the top of your head. It is uh, six questions. It's not 10. It's, it's a little Joe Allen specific, but here we go. We're going to go. So Dana, if you would like to start. Sure. What's your drink at Joe Allen? Oh, I always get a, a wine, usually a Sauvignon Blanc. Solid. <clears throat> <laughs> no problem with that. That's a good selection. Yep. My wife gets the hard stuff. I get the wine. Oh, yeah? And they always bring it and think it's the other way around for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I get that with my wife. The martini goes to her, the wine goes to me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? All things being equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, like in terms of... Where I am in my, because I would say I would, I always wanted to play first base for the Yankees. I'm probably a no spring chicken anymore, so I don't know if I could get it, get into spring trading. But uh, that would be a, a dream come true to get to play on playing the Yankees. Mm. Um, I would also say something that uh, I mean more re- realistic if I ever was going to was uh, a chef. My daughter's been cooking up a storm in this pandemic, and there's there's just a beautiful beautiful artistry to creating food. So. Um, Maybe that would be something that would be really interesting. Have you have you been cooking a lot more ever since the pandemic? <laughs> probably as much as I did before the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably have a lot to pull for this. What live performance floored you the most? Wow. Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, I would say, and there are a lot of them, but I would say when I saw I saw Bruce Springsteen when the E Street Band reunited in the late nineties, and I saw it twice within i think six or seven days and the show was 50 percent different so his three-hour concert 
had changed significantly to the next three-hour concert. And I just remembered thinking, this is, this is one of those moments where you feel like you are in the luckiest place in the world right now. Like, there's nowhere else that you want to be. And it only, if only everyone could experience this. So that's what I would say. Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, nothing like it. He plays for three hours straight. Like, he doesn't stop. It's incredible. And that's short. Yeah. He used to go for five, I heard. I had a friend that was at some state fair and he gate crashed an hour and a half in and he, there was still another three hours of concert. That's amazing. And he's going to be on SNL this week. I can't wait. Oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, wow. Ooh. All right. Good to know. What is your favorite dish at Joe Allen? Either past or present. Well, uh, my staple, trying to be somewhat healthy, is the chicken, spinach, mashed potatoes. Delicious. Always, I miss, because I think they got rid of them, I always looked forward to the cookies and ice cream dessert. And I also love the uh, banana cream pie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. One of our questions used to be hot fudge pudding cake or banana cream pie. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I've had the hot fudge. Okay, then. What? <laughs> then your banana cream pie. Yeah, that banana cream pie would come. I remember Brian Yorkie, my wife Rita, and I. And that thing would come and be like, that is enormous. I did not know it was that big. Thank God the three of us are, are sharing it. I think they get like four slices out of those pies. Right, right. <laughs> so what's your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word? Yeah. Wow. How's that Joe Allen specific? <laughs> or just, just a good question? It's not. Proust, it's from the original questionnaire. We've mixed a couple oh, in. Can I say, and I can say anything? Sure. If you were working in the restaurant, you would need them a few times. Exactly. So it's sort oh. of Joe Allen specific. I think there's just something satisfying about saying fuck. Sure. The F word. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's it's short. It's demonstrative. And I mean, if, if something, if I'm really frustrated, fuck. Yes. So yeah, that's my favorite. Pick one word to describe how you feel about Joelle and the establishment. Um, warmth. We like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And finally, courtesy of Proust, not Joelle. Okay. When you get to heaven, what do you want George Martin to say to you? Well done. Ha <laughs> <right>. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I had a we I thought it would be something like that. Yeah. yeah. We were taking bets. We were taking bets, absolutely. <laughs> or or in second place. I'm glad you were paying attention. Oh. Mm, good. Love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. This was such a wonderful conversation. We really I'm speaking for all of us. We really enjoyed getting to know you. It was really terrific. So thank you. My pleasure. And keep going and, and, and stay safe and positive and, and, and I look forward to being back in, in the beautiful Joe Allen to celebrate our return to Broadway. Absolutely. And uh, I thank you for, for reaching out to me. This was really special to be a part so of So we like to end our show with a little toast. So we raise our glass. To oh. good friends. <laughs> I raise my, my raise your your imaginary. You're, I'll be drinking later. Okay. Your Sauvignon, your Sauvignon Blanc in hand. Yeah, my Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. <laughs> We'd like to raise a glass to good friends, great nights at the theater, and cocktails at Table 7. Right, Cheers. 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 Thank everybody. you so much for coming. Tom. Appreciate it. Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.